With all the issues being discussed in government today, it's easy to get distracted by the politics of everything. But behind the scenes, VMware's cybersecurity software is working overtime to ensure our virtual environments are safe and secure. DH Technologies and VMware are here to offer you a free demo of their virtualization software. Go to dhtech.com demo to find out how to protect your organization today. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from I. Ideas, The Laura Flanders Show, Counterspin, Code Switch, The Young Turks, and Intercepted. Let me take you back to the year 1829, to Britain, and a guy called Sir Robert Peel. He ends up becoming Prime Minister, but in 1829, he was Britain's Home Secretary. In that same year, London got its first police force, the Metropolitan Police, or the Met. The policemen of the Met, of course they were all men, were known as Peelers, after Sir Robert Peel. Today, we know them as Bobbies. And all of them were told to follow Peel's nine principles of law enforcement. Look, it's doubtful he wrote them himself, but they're always called Peel's principles. The basic mission of the police is to prevent crime and disorder as an alternative to their repression by military force. The power of the police is dependent on public approval of their existence, actions, and behavior, and on their ability to secure and maintain public respect. Public respect and approval also means securing the willing cooperation of the public so that the laws can be enforced. The extent to which the public cooperates reduces the need for the police to use physical force. The police must not pander to public opinion. They must constantly demonstrate impartial service to the law, including service and friendship to all members of the public without regard to their wealth or social standing. The police must only use physical force when persuasion, advice, and warning are insufficient to obtain public cooperation. Only the minimum degree of physical force that's necessary to achieve a police objective should ever be used. Now listen, this next one really matters. It's at the core of Peel's principles. The police are the public. And the public are the police. The police are only members of the public. They are paid to give full-time attention to duties that concern every citizen, community welfare, and existence. And they end like this. The police must always refrain from even seeming to usurp the powers of judges. The police are not to determine guilt or punish the guilty. The test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, and not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with them. Today, in Britain, across Europe, across North America, other places too, police departments still invoke those same principles. They also rack their brains to find new ways to connect to them. Call it branding. Let's start with the Met today. Here's its motto. Total policing. The Toronto Police Cars Show. To serve and protect. In Edmonton. Dedicated to protect, 
Proud to serve. St. John. We serve and protect with respect. Chicago. We serve and protect. And New York. Faithful unto death. I suspect that Peel himself would be surprised by all that vigor and probably by all that rigor. It turns out that his big idea about the police and the public, the public and the police, is actually pretty muddled. Listen again. The police are the public, and the public are the police. The police are only members of the public. They are paid to give full-time attention to duties that concern every citizen, community welfare, and existence. Look, it sounds straightforward, but what does it really mean? Do the police serve the public by doing what we say we want or need? Or do cops think they know what's best for public safety? And as our guardians, they must protect us. Ideally, a bit of both. But good luck. Protection, as we all know, is always a bit of a racket. Protect us from what? From whom? Protect us how? With force? How much force? And what if we don't agree? What if we think that we know what's best for us and not the police? Then what? Now, in Peel's day, none of this was really a concern. Who would know if the public agreed with anything the police were doing? Many people couldn't even vote. They weren't allowed to. But today, this idea of agreement or consent is one of the central questions of our time. We see this struggle playing out in Canada, and we of course see it playing out dramatically in the U.S. Here are some stories from CBC News starting in December 2014. I can't breathe. The last words of Eric Garner, a black man killed by a white police officer in New York in July. Yesterday, a grand jury there said it would not indict the officer who put Garner in a chokehold, a move prohibited by NYPD policy. At least a thousand people gathered in Baltimore to protest the death of Freddie Gray. Gray, a black 25-year-old, was arrested on April 12th after officers say he made eye contact with police and ran away. Officers held him down, handcuffed, and loaded him into their van. Gray suffered spinal injuries in custody and died in a coma a week later. Yesterday, police acknowledged Gray should have received medical attention where he was arrested. Protesters have gathered in St. Paul, Minnesota, where a black man was shot by police. About 200 people have gathered outside the governor's residence. They are demanding justice for Philando Castile, who was killed after being pulled over for a traffic violation. His girlfriend was with him when it happened, and she live-streamed the incident on Facebook. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that. We you begin just with the latest from him. Dallas this hour. A sniper has attacked and killed five police officers and injured at least seven others. It's being called the deadliest attack upon U.S. law enforcement officers since 9/11. We're sitting on a powder cake. You can call it a powder cake. You can say that we're handling nitroglycerin, but obviously, when you look at what's going on, we're in a very, very critical point in the history of this country. That quote is from Charles Ramsey in July 2016 on NBC's Meet the Press. 
Ramsey's known as a top cop in the U.S. He was also chair of the White House panel on policing for the 21st century. So here we are, in May 2017, watching the U.S., looking at ourselves, at their cops, at our cops, at the cops and us. At best, relations are strained. At worst, they're loaded with mistrust. So, to the panel, given everything we're seeing, how on earth can we trust the police? So, let me turn to our panelists. How do you describe relations between the police and the public in Canada today? Don. Well, I think what's important to recognize is that there is, at least apparent to me, and I think apparent to many others, an increasing militarization among the police forces. They look more paramilitary than ever. They're wearing uh, camouflage uniforms in some instances. They're carrying AR or assault rifles. No longer do we have the image of the English Bobby, who doesn't even have a firearm with him. And I guess that's a very huge concern, particularly for those on the receiving end of police enforcement. Because when you start characterizing yourself as the hammer, everybody looks like the nail. But we're not the U.S., so are we also sitting on a powder keg? Todd? Almost every fiasco or tragedy in the United States in policing permeates and maybe even pollutes the media in Canada. So I do have a fear that the Canadian discussion of the state of policing, the reform of policing, is influenced by, to some extent, the specter, right, the ghost, if you will, of police problems in the United States. But on the question of trust, I don't think we know whether or not people trust the police, because mostly we don't ask that question. To be honest, I was stunned not to find any consistent surveys that repeatedly use the word trust. We ask about confidence, Do you have confidence that the police are going to be effective in the work? Do you believe that police do a good job? But we don't ask direct questions about trust. And yet people depend on the police routinely. We know in Toronto, uh, more than 1.5 million times people call the police for some kind of assistance. That's down from a couple of years ago, from 2 million. But it means people are maybe not trusting the police, but needing the police or wanting some kind of response. Shauna. I think the challenge is that, you know, especially when you're looking at all of Canada, I mean, my experience is in Toronto, but communities have different needs. And what a community is, is very different, even in the city of Toronto. And you stretch that out regionally across the country and what a community needs, what it wants, what it expects is very different. I'm not saying that there's not themes that you can see across communities and that there isn't some integration there, but certainly it's a challenge to define what that is. Well, so what do we mean by trust here? We could mean trust in some kind of faith-like trust. We could mean the question of whether the public tolerates the police. We could mean Todd's question of needing the police. What is it? Every single scenario you just gave was somewhat negatively slanted, which I just think is really interesting in, in terms of how the question is being framed. And uh, is it a matter of needing the police? Sometimes. Is it a matter of working in partnership for community safety? Certainly that would be something we were aspiring to. And I think it has to be aspirational because at the point where you think, okay, we have trust here in this relationship, what does that look like? Then, you know, at that point, you're taking it for granted. It has to always be a work in progress. Don, what's your sense on this? 
Well, I can only talk from the uh, Indigenous perspective and the community that I come from, the community that I've served, and I can tell you that uh, trust is not a, a word that is used in connection with uh, police services. I have a tendency to agree more with Todd's uh, characterization of it and that there is a need for police, obviously. I mean, if somebody is breaking into my house, I'm calling the cops. But that doesn't mean that police misconduct is something that can simply be overlooked and that that doesn't tarnish the other uh, work that the police services provide. Now we've seen um, mayors and city police commissioners in all sorts of cities responding to assaults and critiques, most recently Mayor Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, but we're hearing it from everyone. What are you making of the kind of responses that you're hearing so far? Well, many of them are very negative. They identify what they don't want. Mm -hmm. They want to reduce the excessive use of force. Very often, though, they talk on the side. We want to instill community trust. But if you look at what they measure, what they measure mm. tends to be arrest, summonses, stops. They also will look at reports, which aren't always made, of excessive force. But there are no measures of community trust. There are very few measures of de-escalation, which is identified as a way to avoid excessive force. So if I could suggest we would actually try to identify what we want police to do in a positive sense and then go ahead and use the adage, we treasure what we measure. Well said. I could not say it better. I had a conversation, um, two conversations that really stand out for me. I had a conversation with the mayor uh, a year and a half ago and later another version of that conversation with the now uh, police commissioner who's a friend and I think has a, has a good heart and the different responses. There's a distrust between police and public and public and police mm -hmm. and that is built into the culture. We should say you have been on both sides of that yes. and you wrote about your own experience at the hands of the police when you were 15 and yes. then you served for whatever it was, 22, 22 years. 22 years. And we need to erode that distrust, and that just distrust must be a built-in measuring tool. Um, how do we promote? How do we decide who's going to be a, a precinct commander? How do we give rank? Police should be out there every day. We have a municipal ID program. That cop should be on the corner handing out those forms, telling someone that, listen, you know what, we have a municipal, municipal ID program, be a part of it. The mother who goes in the subway station should be able to say, Officer Johnson, I heard your son just graduated. Congratulations. And yes, uh, Ms. Jones, I heard your daughter um, just had a baby. That's the relationship. Because you know what happens with that communication? That's the same mother who's going to stop and say, there's a person who's selling guns in my building. Mm -hmm. You know, that's mm -hmm. the, 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 the relationship that developed. Bad guys talk. The good guys have this wall that they've been divided from each other, and we need to, I never thought I would borrow from Ronald Reagan, but we need to tear down that wall. <laughs> but Donna, I mean, we've heard from people on this program before, particularly some of the folks involved in the Say Her Name, Black Lives Matter campaigns, 
across the country, there are whole neighborhoods where people are not going to call the police because their experience is that is an, that leads to an escalation and often, especially in the case of women of color, um, sometimes fatalities. We've, mm -hmm. we've talked about them on the show. Mm -hmm. So how do you start turning some of that stuff around? Well, I, I think that Eric makes a good point. The police, you know, sort of starting perhaps with the Giuliani era, where uh, instead of focusing on neighborhood policing, community policing, and policing, and that can mean a whole lot of different things depending on who's saying it, but policing that's based on relationships and respect. You know, the, the, the notion of, you know, uh, serve the community, not, you know, hammer and occupy the community. Uh, so I, th um, I think if, if, if there's, if we replace those, those SWAT teams and the SWAT team mentality with neighborhood policing, where people are in the communities, you know, day in, day out, and have a reason to and have a basis to develop relationships, it's like a whole other uh, story. Are and we just and, going back, Judy, to the conversation about where cops live and where they well, come yeah. from? I think what I'm hearing from you is a bit more sophisticated than that. Well, I think, you know, the examples that both of you give about interactions in the community if you really want that, you really want the officer to say, oh, Ms. Jones, I see, you know, your daughter's graduated, and there had to, has she heard about such and such a program, right? Because one of the measures of community policing that I've suggested is called positive interaction. Mm. So and you'd so, actually measure that? Yes. And so um, both Donna and Eric have actually uh, been in favor of using body cameras. Body cameras have very often been used to identify the negative, but as Donna said, they can be used in a positive way to identify the positive. I love that. Mm -hmm. So if you use a body camera, you could actually have the officer be on record mm -hmm. as starting a conversation, just like Eric has talked about, and at the same time sharing something about himself or herself so that it's an interaction so then you would have dialogue between individuals about meaningful things. The problem we're having in policing is that if you were to look at the men and women who lead the policies and police practices, they were police officers during um, yeah. the most horrific crime pattern years, yeah. during the 80s, during the late, some, some even back to the 70s. The mindset of something as foreign as saying good morning to someone walking right. on the block is like, are you kidding me? You know, we don't do this. <laughs> We're not social workers. We go after bad guys. That is the problem. Some of these young cops I see who were the victims of aggressive policing who want to build bridges, they are having impediments mm. in doing so. We met a group of young officers in the 9-0 precinct who are spending their time going out and, and going to young people who had negative in interactions and talking to them and mm. grooming and developing these relationships. And just the obstacles are with the problem. The, 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 the policy makers are in the way of changing the paradigm of the effect.
As a fellow fan of podcasts, I hope that you are not constraining yourself to just news and politics shows, because we are living in the golden age of audio right now, and producers from around the world are doing amazing things with the medium. And now there's this team of producers doing something I have never heard of before. Think of the kind of professional production and storytelling techniques that you know and love from some of your favorite podcasts, and imagine that applied to your own family history. An audio documentary, custom-produced for you and your family, that can be treasured not just now, but for generations to come. Family Sound's oral history documentaries are artfully crafted narratives made to best fit the needs of each story. The interviews are done professionally, and the production is high quality to capture and preserve the valuable voices and memories of the people you care most about. You can learn more about what they do and get in touch with them at their website, en.familysounds.net. The EN ensures that you get to their English language site. And for 5% off your order, be sure to let them know that I sent you by using the promo code BESTOFLEFT. That's en.familysounds.net, promo code BESTOFLEFT. We read often about a breakdown in relationships between communities of color in particular and law enforcement, or we read about a loss of trust. And that implies an earlier halcyon day. Uh, history is, in fact, deeply meaningful, but not the kind of imaginary history that this invokes. Can you remind us of some of the origin story of policing in America, which gets at the, the why? Yes, yeah, so I, I have a new essay in the new inquiry called The Myth of Liberal Policing that is adapted from a chapter of the forthcoming book. And in it, I basically challenge this liberal notion that policing has always existed to fight crime and to keep us safe, when the historical record is really dramatically different, that the policing has always been a tool of state coercion that has served the interests of maintaining and reproducing existing economic arrangements of inequality. And in particular, I link it to three major institutional forces in the 18th and 19th century, and those are colonialism, the manage of the emerging industrial working class, and slavery. And on the latter part in particular, I went down to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and I looked at some of the origins of the Charleston City Guard, which predated the formation of the London Metropolitan Police that are often held up as like the first modern police force. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that the Charleston City Guard was a direct outgrowth of efforts to manage what was an emerging mobile industrial slave population. In cities like Charleston, Savannah, and New Orleans, slaves actually worked outside of the home of their owners in many cases. They worked on wharves and warehouses and in emerging industrial production. They carried little badges that identified their owner and their permission to move about freely, but they also, as a result of this, had access to some money 
and began to form underground societies and engage in underground leisure activities, drinking establishments, gambling, but also religious groups, study groups, people were learning how to read, and white residents of Charleston were terrified about this freely moving black population and basically created a police force to manage that mobile slave population. Mm -hmm. And of course, these forces then after the Civil War become transformed into the kind of Jim Crow police forces that that we see, you know, using water hoses and dogs on civil rights protesters. So this idea that the police existed to produce crime-free, secure societies was only really true in the South for whites. Right, and that um, piece, The Myth of Liberal Policing, is online at thenewinquiry.com. Calm. And it also, there are a lot of interesting aspects, including, you know, the militarization of, of police work we think of as something new. And that, in fact, or the adaptation of tools and tactics from war being brought home to domestic policing, that's not really new either. And there's also Im- information on that history in there as well. Let me just say something about those, because it's important to understand police as an alternative to using the military, mm-hmm. because Before the emergence of modern police forces in in the early to mid-19th century, state authorities had to rely on local militias or the army to put down riots, insurrections, strikes, etc. And those forces had very limited tools to use, basically sabers and muskets. And as a result, they killed a lot of people, and that process serve to undermine state legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And civilian police forces are created to manage those problems in a less violent, less militarized way, primarily because of the desire to improve legitimacy. And Robert Peel, who creates the first London police force, he learned this while being in charge of the English occupation of Ireland, where he creates the first civilian peace force that replaces militias with a a more permanent and less militarized force that focuses on preemptive political action, embedding themselves in local communities, making arrests, instead of lining up and shooting people. But with a goal, and this continues this lineage draws down to today with an ultimate goal of shoring up legitimacy. And I guess what we're talking about is it's that very legitimacy that seems to go unchallenged, the the, the legitimacy of the role of law enforcement within society. That's right. So this idea of legitimacy goes unchallenged in contemporary debates. Everyone just assumes, yes, police legitimacy is a good thing. And my point is that we actually need to really question what the purpose of police legitimacy is. If it is to manufacture public consent for a war on drugs, a war on terror, a war on disorder, then it's deeply problematic. It is basically enabling these coercive state forces to maintain and reinforce racial and economic inequality. 
Well, one of the places that those contradictions have become most pointed recently is when people are saying that they want to support the idea of sanctuary cities where local officials wouldn't cooperate with ICE and deportations, but at the same time, they don't recognize that they need to also challenge broken windows policies. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that nexus and why it's important to see. Yes, my colleague Alan Aha and I wrote a piece for a local newspaper here in New York in which we we laid this out not long after the uh, election where we said Trump claims that he intends to ramp up the deportation of immigrants with any kind of criminal record meant that hundreds of thousands potentially of people across New York would be at risk of ending up in deportation proceedings, not because they were violent criminals, but because they had jumped the turnstile on the way to work or had gotten arrested for riding their bike on the sidewalk. And while the city may claim that they don't actively cooperate with federal authorities, all federal authorities have to do is just plant themselves in court and as people appear on these charges, they can literally just pick them up and take them away for deportation proceedings. Now, we haven't seen this kind of widespread practice for low-level offenses so far, but we have seen some instances of this. And certainly, as the Trump administration you know, ramps up its rhetoric and its enforcement, this is a real risk. And it could include not just people here without any documentation, but even those on certain kinds of visas or green cards conceivably as the criminalization of this population rolls along. Well, and I guess also one of the things you hope folks will see is that, yes, now you're paying attention to how easily people can be caught up in the system, and we should care about that even if the outcome is not deportation, but just, you know, as you said earlier, a ruined life, that kind of low-level criminalization, very selectively enforced, is damaging, and it we should understand that it's damaging, um, even as we trace it, you know, damaging new communities or people in, in new ways. Well, I think that when some people do support the idea of less policing, you know, as opposed to better policing... I think they do so to some extent as part of a utopia, you know, uh, that they don't see a warning, you know, um, it's a it's a feeling that that's a long way off. And in the meantime, it, it, it seems to imply chaos. You know, what do you possibly mean having less police? I wonder if you can talk a little bit about just how you introduce the idea to people. So my approach has been to directly and empirically interrogate specific aspects of policing, mostly things that have come under police control only in the last 40 years, and to ask, what are the origins of this kind of policing? What are the consequences of this kind of policing? And what are the alternatives to this kind of policing? So one example I often start with is school policing. Here in New York City, we now have more NYPD. PD personnel in city schools than we have counselors of all varieties, over 5,000 personnel. And 
the origin of school policing is based in many ways on two myths. One is the super predator myth that was perpetuated by conservative academics and politicians in the 1990s that said that we were on the brink of a wave of pathological youth violence that was going to run amok in our cities and schools and that we needed to identify, isolate, and neutralize this threat. Of course, every year after that article and those views were put forward, youth crime dropped. But nonetheless, it became fodder for a movement to put armed police in our schools. The other was the myth that following Columbine, that our schools were incredibly dangerous places and the only way to keep them safe was to place armed police there. Of course, what people forget is that there were already armed police at Columbine when that tragic shooting happened, and they were totally unable to prevent the attack. And in fact, that year and in the years following, school is the safest place that young people spend time. It's safer than their homes. It's safer than their communities. So there are problems in schools. There are problems with discipline and even problems with crime and violence. But there's absolutely no evidence that putting armed police in schools is fixing that problem. In fact, the research shows just the opposite. Instead, we need to look at things like restorative justice programs, rethinking disciplinary measures, and also looking at the corrosive role of high-stakes testing in driving both students away from a positive attitude about education and orienting schools towards driving those young people out of those institutions through suspensions and criminalization. So that's an example where we don't need nicer school police. We don't need better trained school police. We don't need school police to be mentors to young people. We need to eliminate school policing altogether. Well, let me just ask you uh, finally, and it's and you're you're illustrating it, but the idea of depolicing is not in contrast necessarily to the idea of reform. What would you say the relationship is? I mean, how how do they fit together? So, I think that obviously there are needs for major changes in policing. The problem is this misunderstanding that if we change some training, we hire a few more diverse police officers, we put on body cameras, that this will accomplish anything substantial. If we don't change the fundamental mission of police, those reforms will not work. So efforts to reform the police don't have to all be about eliminating these police functions but they can't either be only focused on a handful of procedural reforms. I look for reforms that bring immediate relief or, you know, more or less, but that point towards larger structural changes. So eliminating broken windows policing will bring relief right away to people, but it also questions why we rely on police to manage homeless people urinating in public, why we use police to manage 
the young people in the summer hanging out in the park after it closes, and why we manage poor people having to jump the turnstile because they can't afford the ever-increasing subway fare. In addition to those police reforms, we need to address those underlying dynamics that are producing the crime and disorder that we have asked the police to fix for us. Last summer, Philando Castile was driving home with groceries. His girlfriend and his girlfriend's daughter were in the car when he was pulled over near a small town called Falcon Heights, Minnesota. The officer who stopped him thought he fit the description of a robbery suspect who had, quote, a wide set nose. Now, the accounts of what happened after that initial stop diverge. Officer Yanez says he opened fire on Castile because he thought Castile was reaching for his gun and he feared for his life. Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, started live streaming on Facebook almost immediately after those shots were fired. And here's some of that audio. He's licensed. He's carried. To, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um pocket. And he let the officer know that he was... He had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet and the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. During the trial, Diamond Reynolds reiterated that Castile was reaching for his driver's license, not a gun. Regardless, the jury did not convict Officer Yanez. One juror, Bonita Schultz, said they just couldn't be sure if Castile was reaching for a gun or not. We reached out to the police department in St. Anthony Village, that's where Officer Yana's worked, to talk about the outcome of the trial. They pointed us to a statement on the city's website that says, quote, The city of St. Anthony has concluded that the public will be best served if Officer Yana's is no longer a police officer in our city. The city intends to offer Officer Yana's a voluntary separation agreement to help him transition to another career other than being a St. Anthony officer. Now, according to the statement, how that will all go down is still being negotiated. I'm Reham Fashir. I'm a reporter with Minnesota Public Radio and a co-host of the 74 Seconds podcast. 74 seconds passed between the time Officer Yanez turned on his police lights to pull over Philando Castile and then fired seven shots, killing him. Reham Fashir's podcast examines that 74 seconds and everything that came after. Reham, can you take us into the courtroom on the day the verdict was read? Take us into that moment. I was sitting in the fourth row behind Officer Yanez and his family. So I was sitting on one side and the Castile family was sitting on the other side. So everything was quiet and the judge had ordered everyone to stay in their seat. No one was allowed to leave until the hearing was over. But as soon as Valerie Castile heard um, not guilty on the third count, she got up and she yelled, F this and got out of the courtroom. Everybody else followed her from that side. And then there were also a lot of emotions on the other side, on Yana's side. The lawyers were hugging and congratulating the family. They were thanking them. And he was free to go after that. And then we ran into uh, the Castile family outside giving their statement. Did anyone find Yanez's family after the verdict? Or did they try to? 
Well, we tried to reach them, but no, we couldn't find them. They didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to comment. What was the makeup of the jury like? It was uh, 12 people, mm. five men and seven women, and two of them are black. Mm. One is an 18-year-old woman born in Ethiopia who came to the U.S. as a child, and the other one is an African-American man who identified himself as a millennial. Mm. Most of them aren't talking to us. One of them we caught up with afterwards, and he said that two of the jurors were leaning toward a guilty verdict. Mm. But we don't know which of the jurors were leaning towards that guilty verdict. But we do know, according to that juror, that it was not split along racial lines. So what have the activists said uh, that they're going to do now? Well, they're planning more gatherings. Um, there will likely be more protests. They promised more. But we don't know exactly what uh, sort of gatherings are going to happen. Um, there are community meetings happening around St. Paul and St. Anthony. So the conversations will continue. The conversations will continue to happen on what needs to change to improve police-community relations. When we talk about community reaction, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the news about the protesters. Has there been community reaction in support of the verdict? Well... It's not as visible as the reaction we've seen from protesters, but at least I've seen um, social media posts supportive of Officer Yanez and his family. There was kind of a, a small campaign, a smaller campaign than the Philando campaign on social media called I Stand With 151, which is Officer Yanez's badge number. Hmm. One of the jurors said something about the way the law was written is what didn't allow them to convict the officer. And what does that mean, the way the law was written didn't allow them to convict this officer? It's really complicated just because they had to consider a couple of different laws, even though the charges were the manslaughter law. But in a manslaughter case, culpable negligence is the deciding factor. So in Minnesota, state law justifies an officer's use of deadly force to protect the police officer or another from apparent death or great bodily harm. And then the manslaughter law says a person is culpably negligent if they create an unreasonable risk. So because state law gives officers discretion in the use of deadly force, some jurors can be reluctant to convict a police officer or even find them guilty of the other charge, which is the manslaughter law or the culpable negligence standard. You are co-hosting this podcast, which has looked at what happened on July 2016, that traffic stop that ended with the death of Philando Castile and then the trial of Jeronimo Yanez. I mean, are you going to keep following the story? Yeah, we're, we're following the story. There is more to say. There are more angles to explore. Which angles are there still to explore? Uh, one issue that came up is the permit to carry a gun. Mm -hmm. So we're exploring that angle, what it's like for black drivers who are gun owners and who are legally licensed to carry guns. One of the things that was interesting about that element of the case was that this did not become a story about gun rights in a way that you might imagine another story in which a police officer shot someone who had legal paperwork that allowed them to carry a gun, in which they might rally around someone like that. Right. We haven't heard a lot from the NRA about about this case. We're also interested in exploring the use of force law to talk about when activists and when protesters are looking for prosecution and they're looking for police officers to be held accountable. But at the same time, if the use of force law and the laws are always going to be 
in the same language that they're written, then we just don't think that um, it'll be easy to make any change happen. Are you saying that it's difficult to fix these things on the back end? Like you'd have to rethink the ways and the circumstances under which we allow police to use force to begin with? That's exactly what I was trying to say is that there are groups of people who are trying to lobby the legislature along with the pressure that's happening on the streets. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. As I watched the murder of 12-year-old Tamir Rice at the hands of Cleveland police, I questioned everything about my decade of being a police and was driven to study police science and find solutions. This drive came from a moral imperative that continues to burn at my soul. From the day I joined the Marines at age 17, I dedicated my life to service. What were my efforts for? I had to face the words of 18th century criminologist Cesar Beccaria. Liberty is at an end whenever the law permits that in certain cases a man may cease to be a person and become a thing, or in more familiar terms, a perp, a thug, convict, inmate number 2926. In this quest for solutions, the hardest pill to swallow has been that the desire to avenge Tamir and punish his killer will do nothing to protect the next child from being murdered. Finding ways to protect other children from being killed at the hands of police is the only way to ensure that Tamir Rice did not die in vain. And isn't just that we know punishment is not an effective deterrent, as demonstrated in everything from drug dealing and capital murder to spousal abuse and theft. It's that focusing on individuals perpetuates the mentality that officers who break the law and brutalize suspects are just bad apples, which is an inaccurate reflection of our policing institutions. If we allow ourselves to just blame the bad apples, we deny the need for the hard work required for an ethical society. This makes me call upon the words of the author of the Middle Passage, Charles Johnson. We can't be bound by the past, but we must not be blind to it either. In American policing, all of our apples are contained in a rotting system. Continuing with the apple analogy, the systems and institutions of policing are the barrels we place the apples in. And these systems were crafted to create and maintain oppressed classes while extracting resources from those oppressed classes to fund their very oppression, to protect the property of the wealthy, and to continue the genocide of the Native American nations. The planks of the policing barrel have been seasoned throughout time with slavery, treaty violations, crime bills, mass incarceration, environmental poisoning, 
Jim Crow, regressive taxation, and more. Any serious attempt at police reform can't focus just on punishing the bad apples. It has to attack the barrel itself. Because of the rotting and corrupting barrel, even the best measures to control the police use of violence cannot compete with the ultimately corrupting influence of the barrel. This applies from every police reform from body cameras to disciplinary review boards. Look for future videos from me where I'll lay out my solutions to the problems of urban policing in America, a solution known as civilian-led policing. We actually know these answers, but we can fear ourselves into inaction. When it came to, you know, law and order, at least on a rhetorical level, like Trump took the spiel to new heights. I am the law and order candidate. While both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders tried and at times fumbled to address the growing Black Lives Matter movement, which, of course, is a decentralized movement. It arose in protest of the police killings of uh, black people in this country. Trump didn't even pretend that it was a serious issue, that it was a real issue. Uh, in fact, Trump often mocked it. He did not take the issue seriously. Beyond the rhetoric, Trump put a proven racist, Jeff Sessions, in charge of the Justice Department as attorney general. Unfortunately, in recent years, law enforcement as a whole has too often been unfairly maligned and blamed for the crimes and unacceptable deeds of a few in their ranks. Amid this intense uh, public scrutiny and criticism, morale has gone down uh, while the murder of police officers killed in the line of duty has gone up. Stocks in private prisons skyrocketed in the aftermath of Trump's election. We recently learned that David Clark, the Milwaukee County Sheriff, uh, was going to be getting a top post at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to make something very clear. Blue lives matter in America. Sheriff Clark was a big hit at the Republican convention where he showed up looking like a military general. At least he wanted to appear as one with all of his little medallions on his police uniform. Uh, but back in Milwaukee County, and I'm from Milwaukee, Clark faces very serious questions about a string of suspicious deaths that have taken place in holding cells, jails that are under his control, but he's uh, apparently on his way to Washington. Now, when, when Trump and his administration talk about crime and imprisonment in the black community, they do it with no historical context. They feed what I would call a racist narrative in addressing some of these staggering statistics. More than 60% of people in prison today are people of color. Black men are nearly six times as likely to be incarcerated as white men, and Hispanic men are more than twice as likely. For black men in their 30s, one in every 10 is in prison or jail on any given day. The rate of imprisonment for African-American women is more than twice that of white women. Right now, the United States 
has more than 2 million people in prison. That's a 500% increase over the past 40 years. That's the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Joining me now is the organizer and educator, Miriam Kaba. She is the founder of Project Nia and a co-organizer of Survived and Punished. She's also one of the sharpest people I know on Twitter, where her handle is Prison Culture. Miriam, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Now, you refer to yourself as an abolitionist. What do you mean by that? Abolition for me is a long-term project and also a practice around kind of creating the conditions that would allow for the dismantling of prisons, policing, and surveillance, and the creation of new institutions that actually work to keep us safe and are not fundamentally oppressive. What you need to make those conditions happen, you have to be for addressing environmental issues, you have to be for uh, making sure people have a living wage economically. I think I know for me it's important to be anti-capitalist. All those things feed into creating the conditions that would lead to the end of the things I want to see and the bringing into being of the things I want to have. For people who don't have a loved one that's been to prison, haven't been to prison themselves, just sort of view prison as a place where people who commit crimes go, right. set a kind of context for people of the the institution of imprisonment in the United States and, and what that looks like. Prison itself is a reform. And I think that's something that most people don't think about, right? Prisons haven't always existed. They came into being, especially in the United States, because people were trying to react against capital punishment and corporal punishment, which were seen at the time by particularly Quakers as incredibly inhumane. So initially, the reform itself was not meant to be a brutalizing thing. But isolation itself is actually brutal. Over the years, prisons have been spaces where we've sent the people we don't like or the people we want to manage and control socially. Early before the Civil War, most people who were locked up were not actually Black people, because almost every Black person in the country was enslaved. Immediately after, you know, emancipation, all of a sudden, the literally complexion of prisons change. And Black people become kind of hyper-targets of that system. And we create new laws, the Black Codes and other things like that. Convict lease system comes into being as a way to continue to exploit the labor of the people who are now newly free. The reason to talk about that history is also to demystify for people how and why people ended up behind bars initially. That it wasn't really about real crime, but it was about a perception of Blacks as inherently criminal in order to continue to control Blacks who people thought after enslavement actually didn't have a right to be free, that Black people couldn't manage freedom. And that was the story that got told. Um, and so the prison became a site for continuing to control Blackness. And we have arrived in the late 1960s when there was a rise in murder and in robberies, particularly. So kind of violent crimes are rising at the same time as the Black power movement is also expanding. And these two things are being brought together. Only our brother, Martin Luther King, exhausted a means of nonviolence with his life being taken by some racists. What is being done to us is what we hate, and what happened to Martin Luther King is what we hate. You darn right. 
we respect nonviolence. But to sit and watch ourselves be slaughtered like our brother, we must defend ourselves, as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. The story that gets told is that, you know, it's mainly Nixon who comes in and puts in the kind of war on drugs, the beginning of the war on drugs. And he was like, the Republicans are to blame for how the carceral state got built more massively. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Between 1825 until like the late 1960s, the prison population is stable. It's pretty low. In the late 1960s, you've got all these scholars and activists talking about the end of prison. People are talking about the prison as being over. So you have to think about like how we went from like the end of prison to all of a sudden the largest jailer in the whole entire international sphere in the world becomes the United States. And that's because of a set of policies that come into play. Um, and those policies are bipartisan policies, but really take off with Johnson, where Johnson wants to fight the war on poverty. And he gives in on creating a war on crime arm of the war on poverty. And what do the Republicans do, which they always do so well? They want to defund the poverty angle and they want to keep the war on crime. What was the motivation in, yeah. in your assessment of these politicians, both Democrats and Republicans? It was, quote unquote, the riots. It was the images of those young black people in Watts and a 1964 in Harlem and in all these places where there were, quote, urban disorder and urban unrest. And the face of that were black young people. <laughs> Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than a hundred square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. Firemen were harassed by snipers and brick-throwing hoodlums as they attempted to control the fires, many of which were left to burn themselves out. The this is why you can't talk about incarceration, criminalization in this country without understanding the history of blackness and black people in this country, the ways in which the politicians have used us basically as the fuel to make things happen that then bleed out to the rest of the population. So we're always the canaries in the coal mine. We go into Bill Clinton and what he does with the 1994 crime bill. When I signed this crime bill, we together are taking a big step toward bringing the laws of our land back into line with the values of our people and beginning to restore the line between right and wrong. Which actually doesn't have that much of an impact in terms of spiking the numbers even higher. What he does is give people more of an ideological basis to continue to do what they've been doing. He was one of the most destructive presidents for black people we're still trying to recover from his reign, both in terms of what he put into place around immigration and immigrant detention. A lot of people don't think about that as black, but the people who are most incarcerated within immigrant detention are disproportionately black immigrants. Well, and of course, you had this massive atrocity that happened at Guantanamo right. with uh, Haitians that were uh, right. uh, fleeing violence that the United States uh, uh, sponsored right. in the form of overthrowing Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And then you had... Uh, and I think a lot of people, particularly young people, don't know this history. Before Guantanamo was the place where That's Bush right. stuck people extrajudicially right. in the so-called war on terror, Clinton piled up the bodies That's inside right. of Guantanamo of right. 
the first independent black republic in the Western Hemisphere. That's right. It came back to haunt Hillary Clinton in, in Miami with the Haitians that were there not voting for her, right? So there's people have long memories. But welfare reform, or what we call welfare deform, um, had such a disproportionate impact, particularly on single Black mothers. The ways in which the carceral state was kind of reinforced and made much more brutal through the three strikes laws, through the mandatory minimum sentences, which were up through his horrific uh, behavior around rushing back to Arkansas during his election to go and put a, somebody who was mentally disabled to death. Right. He really set in place the the apparatus that we are still trying to dismantle today. We heard clips today starting with ideas taking us through the evolution of policing. The Laura Flanders Show discussed some positive police reform ideas. Counterspin looked deeper into the concept of police legitimacy and what it really upholds. Code Switch delved into some of the complications of the Philando Castile case. Michael Wood Jr. on The Young Turks explained that it's not just a few bad apples, it's the barrel that's the problem. And finally, we just heard Intercepted speaking with Miriam Kaba, maybe better known by her Twitter handle, at Prison Culture, taking a holistic view of the problem with policing and where it came from. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. This is Elena Silva in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and what I would like to say is that if the United States has a level of progress or economical uh, well-being, it is due to the fact that this country is built on the backs of 300 years of slavery, the extermination or genocide of the American Indians, and all the things that have been, things that have been done against Mexico, the stealing of half of Mexico's national territory, and that was uh, in the 1800s and 19, 1900s. Well, in the 20th century, there was all the things that were done against different Latin American governments, where they got rid of Jorge Arbenz in Argentina, Allende in, in Chile, Jagustart in Brazil. All of these things, I mean, there's millions of things that this country has done to other countries. And what goes around comes around. I believe in karma for people and karma for nations. So the United States ought to, you know, as a country, ought to be aware that you know, the, the mess that has been made in Afghanistan, in Syria, in some of these other countries, they think it never could happen here. But watch Trump drop one bomb on Iran, <clears throat> maybe the world will get together and drop a few on the United States. I do not want that to happen. But, hey, <laughs> like I say, what goes around comes around, and sooner or later... The rest of the world is going to get tired of it. Thank you. Request for response on what do we think we should be doing, where the leftists at. So I have two thoughts. One is I do think the Democratic uh, Party is broken. I don't think it represents the majority of people who call themselves Democrats. I think there's too much money in there. 
and I think that needs to come out. But I also want to highlight that the presidency is uh, really not where it's at. I think even if Bernie had made it in, he would have a hard time getting any of his agenda through. Although I like his agenda a whole lot better than I like Trump's. I think he would have a similar problem trying to get stuff through with what we have for a Senate and Congress. And so that's where 2018 and changing the Senate and Congress is so crucial to making the changes that we all want to see. We need to get those people to represent us and stand for the ideals that we want. And if we can do that, we have a chance to make some real change. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay. Best of the left listeners. Brian from Phoenix. I have uh, quick reactions to a couple of the voicemail segments that have been left in the past couple podcasts. One, Russia. The question of whether or not you need to go back to the Cold War for trusting Russia, I think, is uh, a moot point because all you have to do is go back to 2014 for a contemporary reason why you shouldn't trust Russia. The whole invasion of Crimea and how that was shrouded in distrust and a whole sorts of talking out of both sides of their mouths. Uh, the current Russian administration shows just how untrustworthy Russia really is and why we should all have kind of a guttural reaction to uh, why uh, alignment with Russia is a, is a bad idea. Uh, until they are held accountable for that or, or the UN or the world stage uh, helps sort out that mess. I don't know if there's a great way to, to ally with Russia on, uh, on the best of terms. Secondly, uh, the issue of why Bernie and the Hillary camps should be not uh, analyzed along policy lines. I'm totally in agreement with that for the reasons that, you know, any accomplishment of government is broken down into three steps. The classic three parts are the agenda, the policy itself, and the implementation of that policy. And I think that when you look at the tactics and the strategies that go into those three steps, how you get to an approved agenda, how you get to an approved policy, how you get to an approved implementation plan, it's the strategies and the tactics where these two people uh, divert the most uh, or the two camps divert the most or should. I don't know if the, the discussion or the debate has been all that robust in such an organized fashion as far as trying to break down uh, the differences or where the Democratic Party goes in the future, but I certainly would love to see a little bit more discussion, a robust discussion and debate along the lines of how does policy and agendas get set in the Democratic Party in a way that's not influenced so heavily by uh, who can buy the politicians here. And I think there's there's great uh, opportunities to get to a, a better, more robust discussion on these. So we know that the DNC will publish a new platform every big election cycle and how that platform gets formulated. I don't know if we've, uh, the Democratic Party has demonstrated that agenda or that, that platform has been formulated in a very democratic fashion or transparent fashion based on the merit of those ideas through a robust debate. But if anybody has an idea or can show how that debate is happening that I'm not aware of, I would love to know. I would also love to hear ideas on how we create a more robust debate about what the agenda should be and what the policy should be based on a more democratic debate. Thanks for the show, Jay, and thanks for everybody for a great discussion.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, apropos of today's episode, I want to tell you about something, but as is my style, I want to give you a whole lot of context first. So the context is that years and years ago, uh, maybe you recall, there was this period of time when there was a lot of intense focus on especially college campus uh, rape and sexual assault. And those discussions were all over the board. But just to focus on people of goodwill, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion about how should we as individuals or we as society best respond to this seeming epidemic of sexual assault and rape on college campuses and elsewhere. And what I came to discover is that the most basic dividing line between how people see that issue is whether they talk about what individuals should do or if they talk about what society as a whole should do, what should the group do. And if you focus on the individual, then you focus on things like be careful, only go out with friends, don't drink too much, always watch your drink. The more misinformed ones will say things like be careful of what you wear. And on the other side, there would be a lot of pushback against that way of thinking because they would say not only is it ineffective to focus on the would-be victims to try to get them to prevent rape when you should be focusing on the would-be attackers and try to prevent a rape from happening in the first place. And so they would say things like, you know, we need anti-rape training courses in college that are, you know, mandatory instead of, you know, self-protection classes, that type of thing. So, so that's just the, the broad sort of scope of that discussion. And in the midst of all this, at least one product, but, you know, maybe more, but this is the one I remember, came out, uh, or, you know, was trying to be launched. I don't know what happened to it, but it was effectively anti-rape underwear. You could buy this underwear that, you know, it's like a modern-day chastity belt. It had a little lock mechanism on it, and the waistband and, and uh, you know, different parts of it were uncuttable. You know, it was made of fabric, but then sort of like the waistband had, I don't know what, plastic or metal or something, something uncuttable in it, so that theoretically it could be a last line of defense. And this product sparked one of the most interesting and clarifying discussions I've ever had with listeners, and because I didn't know exactly where I came down on it at the beginning, and I didn't have that fundamental understanding of the divide between personal and public responses. And so this is how I think a discussion can go between people of goodwill discussing this idea. One says, well, you know, they're genuinely trying to protect people or get, you know, empower people to protect themselves. And so that's good. And hey, maybe it'll help someone at some point and that'll be good. And on the other side, they would say, well, yeah, but it's, it's not only you know, basically ineffective to focus on the victims, but it's immoral to put the onus on the would-be victim. It, it, it creates a social norm that says people have to protect themselves, and that in and of itself 
is oppressive and wrong. And, and the other would say, well, I mean, yes, but that's not the intention. Clearly, you know, clearly we're just trying to help. So is it so wrong for something like that to exist just to give people the option? And the other would say, it's actually doing more harm than good societally. Because if, let's say, anti-rape underwear exist and someone who is attacked doesn't own them, it opens up the possibility that they could be questioned in exactly the way that they're questioned now and being asked, well, what were you wearing? What, you know, what did you do to provoke this attack on yourself? We already victim blame. If something like anti-rape underwear existed, well, then that could open up the door even further to the question, well, why weren't you wearing your anti-rape underwear? So you see how this conversation breaks down and, um, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting. Like, like I say, it, it basically breaks down to what is potentially theoretically good and helpful for the individual is systemically and societally hurtful because of the social norms that it has the possibility of creating. So that's the context. What I want to tell you about is an anti-police violence wallet. I just came across this. I don't know that it's, it, I don't think it's been a news story or anything like that. I just came across it and it's a wallet that claims, you know, it's, it has the ad that's like, it's going to change your life or it's the wallet you didn't know you needed. And I thought, what the hell, <laughs> what kind of innovation could there be in a wallet? And so I looked at it and the sort of instructional promotional video shows a person, a black person using the wallet and when they take it into their car, it's actually made with some sort of mechanism so that it connects to your air vent in your car. And the idea is that you would put it connected to the left air vent closest to the driver's side window. And they don't spell it out. It's just, you know, if, if you know what to look for and you know what's happening in society... Uh, it's very clear what the point is, and that is that when you are pulled over and a police officer comes to your window and asks you for your license and registration, your license can be right there in full display. I think I think it's even designed so that the license is showing through a plastic window or something and doesn't even have to be opened. So there's no reaching anywhere for the wallet. It's just right there, right where your left hand already is, and you can just pick it up and hand it to the cop. So the question is, how do you feel about that? I feel exactly the same kind of tear between, uh, you know, with the anti-rape underwear, except, uh, I mean, that honestly, the, the modern-day chastity belt is extra creepy on other levels, but the wallet... I, I find both troubling and maybe just a reasonable good idea, but that comes with all of this societal bullshit baggage that makes it so obviously terrible that anyone should ever think that it should exist. And yet, maybe it should.
I would love to know your thoughts on this matter or any other. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and continuing to leave five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left. Com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past